0: Episode 166, Placebo, Empathy, and Kindness to Halt Physician Burnout. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Trosclair, and today we're we'll here Dr. Larry Binn's perspective. Join 2017 and 18 Podcast Awards nominated host and best selling author on Amazon as we get a behind the curtain look at all types of doctor and guest specialties. Let's hear a doctor's perspective. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you again for tuning into the show. And I hope you will leave a review so that other people can know what you're learning from it. As always, if you're looking for any of the books that I wrote, you can actually find them all on Amazon. The China Book, the Acupuncture Book, or the Health Reboot Book, two of which were Amazon bestsellers for a little while. If you're looking to impress other doctors to get referrals or you're looking to become more attractive to businesses so that you can get speaking engagement, I encourage you to visit doctorsperspective.net slash onesheet. So I can create one of those for you so that you can present a uh, concise PDF one-pager that highlights your awesomeness. Lastly, if you like the books that the guests have recommended, just go to doctorsperspective.net slash and They're all right there, right on Amazon. Click the link, support the show, and increase your knowledge in many, many different areas. All right, today. Dr. Larry Benz is a doctor of physical therapy. He's got a master's in business. He's got a master's in applied positive psychology. If you don't know what that was, like I didn't, you'll learn. But he wrote a book called Call to Care. It's part of his thesis that he had to write. And we're going to cover things about like the biopsychosocial aspect of care, placebo, nocebo, goal setting, and really just how to become more empathetic and how to approach your patient so that you, A, can avoid burnout, B, the patient feels heard and likes the care and gets better results, and of course, it's also good for business. Dr. Binz has been around for quite a while. He has multiple businesses. He lectures. He does a whole bunch of things for physical therapy, so so glad to have him on. I think you're going to really enjoy it. You're definitely going to learn something. So if you want to check out the show notes, they'll also have the transcripts and everything mentioned in the show that's important at a net slash 166. Let's go. Hashtag behind the curtain. Live from Germany in Louisville, Kentucky. I hope I said that right. <laughs> Today's guest is, he's got a lot of initials, DPT, OCS, and MBA, a MAP. Some of these I know what they are. Some of them I don't. But I do know he's the co-founder of Confluent Health, and it is a network of physical therapists and occupational health care. And they're doing Pretty much amazing things. They're trying to reduce healthcare costs, but they're also trying to, like, preserve the pureness of the patient and doctor interaction and not just have a bunch of notes. Uh, just so you know, he went to Baylor and the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, he won a prestigious award, which is pretty awesome for physical therapists. And he has a – I want to say a nonprofit, but i pretty sure it's a nonprofit uh, – Sustainable Physical Rehab Clinic in Haiti. And he has a brand-new book in 2020 called – call to care. So please welcome to the show, Dr. Larry Binz.
1: Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, look forward to the conversation.
0: Hmm. I don't know. I guess when somebody's accomplished like yourself to go all the way back to when you were maybe 20 or whatever, like how'd you get into physical therapy it might be a, a bit long time ago. So it might be better to say, what made you, you know, take it to the next level of an MBA, writing a book, and doing a another country's type of clinic so i guess give us the background about how all that sure. came about
1: yeah absolutely so you know i was one of those uh probably you know oddball kids that you know from the time i was in about middle school i knew i wanted to become a physical therapist because as you remember when you go to college you know you're sitting next to a person on either side of you they think they know what they want to do and almost nobody ended up pursuing that path but i pursued a path from the time i was in middle school i wanted to be a pt I was very motivated by sports medicine. I had been an athlete. I had gotten injured as an athlete. And so I had a firsthand exposure to PT. Worked in the summers at places that had physical therapy from everything from skilled nursing to hospital, inpatient, and acute care. So I had kind of a range of experiences. And I wanted to become a PT. So I went to undergraduate at Bowling Green State University and then graduate school at that time for physical therapy. It was a master's degree from Baylor. Uh, eventually got my doctorate through University of uh, Massachusetts General Hospital Institute of Health Promotions and then some other degrees along the way. That You know, probably the addiction I've had is all that I love all things physical therapy. So there's virtually no parts of it I didn't like from patient care to administration to quality to research to academics to teaching. And so I've literally been, uh, you know, smitten by this bug for so, so many years. And that's what got me to the position I am. I was a co-founder of a private practice and uh, eventually uh, co-founded another one. We're up to about 350 locations now with an education company that trains PTs post-professionally. So I've never gotten this academic bug out of me. And at the same time, uh, we have a company that does on-site work injury management. You know, one of the things that uh, really hit me hard was as a military physical therapist. I was an army physical therapist. You know, I had all this college, so I had to figure out a way to pay it back. And the army had a program that allowed me to, you know, be a PT and pay it back at the same time. So it worked well for for my game plan. And one of the things that I was really, really um, taken back by was how psychosocial factors, the way you interacted with a patient, um, sometimes just saying something. There had been some research at the time that said, if you just call an injured worker and tell them you care about them, they have a high statistical odds of coming back and to work. Um, I also found we had malingering patients in the military, go figure. Um, and I had to figure out, you know, what were the reasons for that? And they also had camp CORMA and other kind of hysterical paralysis. And so, it always occurred to me that there was more than the physical aspect of care that was going on into the clinical outcome, but these so-called non-traditional clinical factors. Now in the research they call them a therapeutic alliance, but another kind, you know, they call them bedside manner, if you watch Marcus Welby growing up. What do they have any research underpinnings behind them? And it occurred to me that they absolutely do. You know, we talk about uh, in chronic pain now the treatment of the biopsychosocial factors, which is that, you know, as a human, we have not only the biological underpinning, but we have, you know, the psychological and the social you know, attributes to deal with as well. And so that drew me uh, back to the University of Pennsylvania and their Masters in Applied Positive Psychology course, headed by Dr. Marty Seligman, the, you know, founder, co founder of the field of positive psychology. And it, it, what you find is there's a lot of research that can be translated into healthcare that you didn't even know existed. And so the documentation of that was my journey in that graduate program culminating in a, in a thesis or a capstone, if you will. And then I parlayed that into the book called A Care, which I really try to document for clinicians you know What does the research have to say about how you listen to a patient? What is empathy and compassion? Does that matter? What is a high-quality connection? What type of goals should you be setting for a patient? What does peak end effect to? What does capitalization mean? And as it turns out, the research has a lot to say, especially about things like placebo and nocebo. And um, if you adopt, as it turns out, if you adopt a lot of the transportable psychological concepts into healthcare, three things happen. One is your own burnout becomes far less because you're listening more to the patient. You have this sort of renewal uh, of connection with a patient. Second thing is your care is better. Your outcome is better. We've done research that demonstrates that the emotional intelligence, if you will, or the so-called soft uh, constructs around a practitioner lead to better clinical outcomes. They got better, got back to work, got physically able to uh, run faster and leap tall, build Buildings, and then the third thing, as a business guy, let's not forget, I'm a businessy guy. I've got an MBA, in a, in a, I'm a president, CEO of a of an investor owned company, and it helps business. It's good for business. So you can differentiate yourself in the market place by having therapists, physicians, nurses who are truly called to care, who truly listen to their patients better, who understand empathy and the multi dimensions around that, um, who really get compassion. And at the end of the day, uh, it's all things good. So that's my journey in a nutshell.
0: Mm. Well, I can tell you, when I start getting uh, tired sometimes at the end of the day, or you're just like, oh, this patient's coming in again. Uh, what's going on? Like, <laughs> are they getting better? You, know, you kind of get like, oh, it's just trying to refocus. It's like asking those questions like, okay, activities of daily living. What's going on? and uh, just <laughs> Kind of redoing yeah. the, the the exam, and then all of a sudden I find myself being like, all right, I'm reengaged, I'm focused. Now I know exactly, like, I think, okay, where I should go to now with, with therapy or the rehab or whatever. So there's there's got to be a lot to it. it. I think a long time ago, I don't know if it was called emotional interview.
1: Motivational interview.
0: That's the one. Yep. Does that tie in? I mean, if you've never yeah, read that totally. book, I would recommend it. Does that tie into some of the things that you're talking about being pretty much emotionally available?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So let me give you a couple examples. You know, there's the concept of burnout. Now, burnout is almost like a clinical diagnosis. It means that you've lost the zest for what you want to do. You don't feel like anything you do matters to the care of your patient. You're you're just not receiving any joy from what you're doing. That's a very small percentage of practitioners that get it. But unfortunately, it's a growing percentage of practitioners. But that's different than what we refer to as dehumanization. So you mentioned something at the end of the day, and it's very different for each person. But we learned from call center research where you're literally calling and asking questions, asking for money or whatever the case may be, that after a certain point, you literally stop listening to the other person at the end as though they were a three-dimensional character. You start to dehumanize them. You start to act as though they're two-dimensional. And by doing that, what you're really doing is dehumanizing. We call that calcification. And that effect happens to all of us. You know, if you saw 10 patients in a row, it might happen on the third patient. To another therapist, physician, nurse, practitioner, whatever, it might happen at the 10th patient, but it's going to happen. And so we teach our practitioners how to recognize the symptoms of dehumanization, and then we tell them they need to recalcify or rehumanize. How do you do that? Very different for each person. For some person, it's taking a five-minute breathing break. For some, it's walking outside. For some, it's taking a swig and literally a couple seconds, minutes, or whatever away and drinking a cup of coffee. It is different, and we have to do that throughout the day. So you have to humanize throughout the day, or at some point, you're going to calcify, and that patient is no longer going to be Mrs. Jones. It's going to be Mrs. Jones, uh, going to be the knee patient, if you will. So we have to differentiate between those two. But the interesting thing is. The practitioners that make time for high-quality connections, empathy, compassion, perspective-taking, cognitive-taking, they actually have less burnout. So there is an antidote. We get fed up with paperwork and spending way too much time on, you know, uh, the, the regulatory side of the business of healthcare. Uh, but at the same time, we can truly—the antidote, if you will—of burnout really is empathy and compassion.
0: Interesting you were talking about this uh, paperwork and all that excessive documentation, especially when you're doing physical therapy You know, they really want to know uh, everything that you're doing. But before we jump into that piece, it made me think of how long it takes for a doctor to interrupt their patient when they're, you know, initial exam, what's wrong with you? And it's like, and I think there's a difference between interrupting to find out more information versus, all right, shut up. I understand you got headaches. I don't care anymore. <laughs> I think that's a big difference between, wait, wait, wait. Hang on a second, go back a little bit, explain that a little bit more, you know, go into more detail. But anyway, the point being, what have you found? You know, how long does the patient talk before they really stop talking and then you can ask questions?
1: You know, there are certain studies that show that it's going to be as short as 38 seconds. You know, there are other studies that show, um, you know, the physician seldom gives good instructions to a patient. If you ask a physician, how much time did you spend with that patient, they overestimate it based on film studies and things that go on. What we try to tell our practitioners and what we teach and what is in the book is a concept around emotional handling. So what tends to happen is you get a patient in, Physical therapy, we see a shoulder or back patient. Okay, where'd you get hurt? How long did you get hurt? You know, have you had any history of being hurt before? It's all these who, what, when, and why kinds of things, which you need, of course. Mm-hmm. But how often do we sit back and ask a patient, how do they feel about it? How, um, you know, what were they thinking when they got hurt? And really not connecting to them on any other level than an objective level. And we have to connect with patients on both an objective and a subjective level as well. And... Um, You know, really, the basis of empathy is recognizing that each patient has their own truth. It doesn't have to jive with our experience. It doesn't have to jive even with our understanding of uh, organic, uh, you know, um, uh, anatomy and physiology. What it has to do is we just have to recognize that it's their truth. Um, That is a core tenet of empathy. On top of that, we have to be able to use our experience sharing anything that has happened in our life to be able to relate to that patient. And when you get into this mode of objectifying who, what, when, where, and why, you really shut off two very, very important things with a patient. One is you shut off your ability to connect with them on an experience-sharing basis. And then secondly, you give the principle of power. And when patients feel that they're answering to a powerful character there's a complete disconnection mm. and so the research shows that that even leads to more and more cascading of uh, lack of empathy lack of compassion and less outcomes uh for everybody so it's not good for the system if you will
0: does body language matter i remember reading some books back in my earlier chiropractic years it's because you know you're young you don't know what you're doing sometimes, and then you're a chiropractor so. <laughs> All these little, you know, structural constructs where you're like, okay, I need to build rapport real quick.
1: Uh, very, very good point. In fact, that's the, been the issue around telehealth during COVID. That's been very challenging. So three, at least three things matter: your tone of voice, that's pretty obvious; your facial expressions, that's pretty obvious; and then your body positions, your movement, your movement of your hands, your posture, and everything else. And the receptor, the patient, picks up on all of those when you're on a telehealth visit or a television, or I'm sorry, a telephone type of a visit or texting type of a visit, you lose at least two, if not all three of those. And what we know from texting and communicating and email is that, you, is that not only do you lose the tone of voice, you infer, you make up stories around it. And that's even bad, you know, further bad from everybody, but you're absolutely right. And so what we have to do is when when you have to virtualize a visit because of COVID or other kinds of things, be sensitive, highly attuned to the fact that your body posture, your tone of voice, and your facial expressions make a huge difference.
0: Okay. Everybody's wearing a mask at the clinic, and then I kind of switched over to, like, the plastic visor. And for me, it made a big difference because I'm trying to crack a joke. They're already nervous, and they can't even tell that I'm smiling or whatever. I'm just, like, accentuating the eye motions and the eyebrows and – but yeah. once they switched, I was like, okay, I felt like everybody kind of was more calm and more trusting and relaxed and able to understand.
1: No doubt. It's an no imp- doubt.
0: You have a serious condition, but at the same time, like, it's not cancer. You're not going to die. You don't need chemo. But we can, we can help your back pain.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Okay. Excessive documentation. Oof. Are electronic records really helping us speed things along so we're not spending so much time on it or what?
1: Yeah, all these processes improvement measures, um, having to document more, really demonstrate that they rob the patient of the time with the practitioner. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's the number one point, is you are not substituting time for time. You're taking time away from a patient. You know, in the U.S., where we have government-funded insurance uh, vis-a-vis Medicare and Medicaid, the regulations are so imposing that it takes 15 to 20 minutes more of paperwork on uh, those patients and they get robbed in the process. So yes, it does.
0: Initially or every visit?
1: No, on the initial visit in particular, they take 15 to 25 extra minutes. And then on subsequent uh, visits, they still take longer than a conventional visit. But the, the real question is, do they really add any value to the interaction? The answer is no. And so, you know, everything from coding to documenting to gaming the system, again, is bad for everybody, most notably the patient. So Yes, excessive paperwork and documentation time is not good for the patient, and unfortunately, it's not good for the practitioner. It is the number one reason cited for burnout by the foundation uh, study on physicians in practice. That excessive paperwork, documentation time is really, really uh, you know, a bad wart for the uh, American health system, that's for sure.
0: Do you think there has something to do with maybe their older docs in the Mercedes 80s when you can get paid 20 bucks to put an ice pack on somebody and as the years go by, they're getting more and more disgruntled and getting paid less and I got to do more paperwork. And maybe they just haven't taken a good documentation seminar to know how to meet the PRT and set up their paperwork so it could still be click buttons of five things to do with asymmetry or range of motion. So it's just quicker, easier, and you don't get Audited or failure audit one day?
1: Yeah, I'm sure there's um, some component of that, you know, efficiency and forcing everybody to an EMR. You know, the flip side of that is that every insurance you know, has these various requirements that are superimposed on things that you're already doing. So for Mm -hmm. a Medicare patient, I need to do this. For a Blue Cross patient, I need to do this. For a workers' compensation patient, I need to do this. You know, we have what I refer to as a golf shirt problem. You know, I have a rule that says if I buy a golf shirt or get one at a tournament, I have to replace it with another golf shirt. In other words, I have to throw one away or donate it to Will. Yes, indeed. But what we do in healthcare is we we add golf shirts, but we don't take Mm any away. And so it really is the compounding or the accretive effects of all of these things interacting, which is uh, which, which which can lead to burnout. I mean, you, you raise a very good point. Um, as practitioners, we need to be better trained and be taught a little bit more efficiency and balance you know, that out. But at the same time, most medical providers, you know, you don't go to school to become the best at compliance, the best at documentation, and the best at paperwork. You do it to work with patients and help them.
0: <laughs> you also don't want to be the best at getting fined. <laughs> Oh no! no. the last 500 visits were wrong and now i owe money even though we both know the care was still valid but you know what in in chiropractic land you got people that are trying to do 30 visits and things like that and you don't even have the documentation to approve 12 that's a problem in lots of different matters so i could see why you know they would want the documentation because that's the only proof they have that something happened didn't happen etc what are your thoughts on like assessments like the Roland Morris Bournemouth what's your thoughts
1: so I, I assume you're speaking of sort of validation instruments that mm-hmm. uh, you know Oswestry for the yes exactly or Roland Morris oh no I think they're great you know what we've learned about outcome studies at least in different dimensions so I'll give you an example so for many years, we were trying to use a standardized health outcome measure like the SF-12 or SF-36 that basically said you have all these factors that lead into your health outcome. And so you looked at all the, you know, health-related outcome quality of life scores. As it turns out, at least at physical therapy, and I assume chiropractic and, and, and others, is that, you know, we make people's impairments better. So the impairment rating, the impairment assessment tools, you know, like Oswestry, Neck Index, Lychon, Roland Morris, those have stood up the the, the time much greater than the health-related HRQL instruments. And thank goodness for that because they're more intuitive to a practitioner. They can explain it better to the patient, and um, that's what we do. You know, the number of visits that we see patients. We don't. We don't. Uh, you know, as a PT, I don't solve their diabetes. I help them with their low back pain. Yeah, right. So yeah. I do fundamentally believe that the impairment-based uh, ones for those who are in sort of the physical medicine areas of healthcare are, are have been proven out by the research. And you know, thank goodness it makes sense.
0: What about placebo? How can we use it in an ethical way, but in a way that it can benefit the patient until they get better results? or like, what are you finding with placebo? Because know it has a place.
1: It absolutely does. So let's examine it a little bit. And, and the first myth about placebo is, you know, people say, well, you know, it's all in your head. It's not a physiological thing. Well, it's absolutely not true. They've demonstrated over and over again that the placebo effect is a real effect. And we use it every day of our life when we tell a young kid that he just it's a man, you did a great job. Keep it up. Keep it up. We are, in effect, trying to influence a placebo effect. One of the, one of the ways I do it is I'll, uh, when I teach a class, There'll be a certain number of students. I'll say, hey, I do want you to know, at the end of this class, we're going to have a quiz, and for those who who get the top five online, they're going to get a prize. All right? Mm-hmm. Um, as it turns out, that was all BS. There's no prize. There's no quiz. But we know that, that those students will retain more and more information. In fact, placebo is so powerful, you could even tell them it's a placebo and it'll still work. Huh. Like, for example, I could say, we're going to have a quiz at the end of the prize, and by the way. This is a placebo. When I say all this and do all this, you will you will actually retain more. So you could even tell patients at times that it's a placebo and it works. And so I, I like to say a placebo is part of life. We use it in all other aspects of it. Why would we try to influence it in healthcare, not to the detriment of other evidence-based interventions that work, but to the benefit of it? And so, words of encouragement. Words mean things. How we influence uh, has a big, big part of the so-called, you know, placebo effect. Um, I certainly don't advocate for giving patients, you know, medication that, you know, is not a, a real effect. But in terms of our words of encouragement and how we go about setting patients up, it's absolutely indicated. So we we try to mitigate a nocebo effect, and we try to influence a placebo effect. And it's just as important to mitigate a nocebo effect. If you tell patients how something's going to hurt, we know it's going to hurt more. If we tell them the adverse uh, effects of a certain intervention uh, or a pharmacological agent, a statistical number of them will exhibit those, you know, sort of uh, without Having, if you hadn't used those words or those those terms of influence, is
0: that good or bad?
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, one of the examples we like, I think it's Germany actually, where you do not have the patient's given the option of knowing what the adverse effects are. They can sign a release waiver because, again, the nocebo effect. Certain numbers of them are going to have the have these uh, adverse effects, even if only because you told them about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it happens in dry needling. You know, we use dry needling and trigger point uh, injections and things like that. And the way you speak to a patient about that procedure has a lot to do with how they experience it. So you have to be careful about it. So, yeah, a basic underlying um, foundation of nocebo and placebo is key for any healthcare practitioner.
0: Well, before we move on, is there anything else that you would? I have a couple of standard questions before we end interview. So I'm sure. leaning towards. Is there anything that we missed or that you would want to chat about that we haven't chatted yet?
1: Yeah, the only thing I would say is that when we use the words empathy and compassion, we have to be very, very careful because empathy is a multi-dimensional construct. It's got about four aspects to it. You know, you have perspective taking, which is so-called cognitive aspect, you know, walking in somebody's shoes, that's a that's perspective taking. You have sort of the emotional aspect. the the affective part of of empathy, and that's the emotional sharing and relying on your experience. But then there are other components too, like one, for example, that we're very good at in healthcare is pro-social concern, meaning we're motivated to get a patient better. Um, Unfortunately, sometimes our empathy is only around pro-social concern. We want to help somebody, so we hurry, but we have to have the other components of empathy as well. And then lastly is the whole notion of non-judgment. So without all four of them, you know, compassion, rightly so, gets a lot of attention. But compassion is one of the subsets of empathy. You're motivated. You're inspired to help the patient. So you can't really divorce empathy from compassion because compassion is all compassion is empathy, but not all empathy is compassion. So I like to you know, differentiate for, for folks those concepts. So glad you asked. Thank you.
0: Yeah, you bet. So. Your, your helper sent you the, the link of questions, but here it is. It's very simple. A lot of people have multiple businesses like yourself and then are on their second marriage or third or whatever. So I always ask, is there any hints to keep the love alive in a relationship so that you know you, you stay happy in that realm of life?
1: Well, you know I'm a big believer in novelty, and I'm a bl- big believer in newness and keeping things fresh and being a admirer of that. I'm also a big believer that you have to... Watch your own cognitive biases. And many of them are the stories you tell yourself about things, the email that you read or the message you read where you interpret for yourself and you make all these counterfactuals and all of these things up. And so the only antidote I know to that is curiosity Mm. and curiosity really, really. In fact, if people don't like the word empathy, I tell them, be curious and always curious to a point of where you're questioning things and really trying to keep non-judgment away. You know, judgment is the most addictive drug that we ever have created. And it, and for a good thing, you know, we, we rely on judgment when we have to make assessments, when we have to think things through. But it also can harm us if constantly we're making judgments about somebody or something when we don't need to and part of empathy is trying to turn off the judgment so part of you know who do we tend to judge the most as we get older is those who are the closest to us which is kind of sad when you think about it
0: and we usually have a negative view on it too
1: yeah exactly so new i think the only antidotes to that are newness curiosity and to try as best you can to, to shut the judgment uh, train on off and if you can't take a few deep breaths and you'll get over it
0: <laughs> all right how, how do we unplug so we can take more vacation?
1: <laughs> well, I call it being purposely irresponsible. I hmm. consider that a skill like anything else. And uh, you have to develop a skill to just uh, be irresponsible in a purposeful way towards your own leisure time, your own health, your own emotional fitness. Absolutely. a big believer in it. Practice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, okay. That's good. Lastly, including your own book, definitely – pitch that give us a web page any books or podcasts that you're consistently are recommending
1: yeah i always recommend malcolm gladwell's podcast because i learned a tremendous amount just absolutely love it i you know i read the book bias earlier this year i thought it was uh, tremendous helen reese has written a book about empathy that i thought was uh, also extremely good just got done reading a book this morning actually called um Always take and never take yes for an answer, uh, which I thought was a more of a businessy kind of a book by a very profound business guy who has a acronym called AWE, authenticity, I think, warmth, uh, energy, and and uh, so it's, it, it was a very very good one as well. I try to do two books a. Uh, a month, or a combination of direct reading and, and listening on uh, all the different accoutrements of it. But I tend to lean more towards the sciences, and really more towards the psychological, you know, literature. Mm-hmm. The new smart behaviors, for example, is a tremendous book. I read a couple of years ago. Um, so yeah, those are those are the ones that come to mind.
0: Yeah, you know, I think Malcolm. He he, because uh, we're on a first name basis with me and Malcolm. Yeah, sure. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of people talk about his book, you know, ten thousand hours and this and that, and they always leave out that last piece. It's with a mentor, with a coach, someone to correct you in those 10,000 hours. And people don't hear about that part a lot of times. And it's so important.
1: I talk about that a little bit in the book, Andras Erickson's Deliberate Practice. Deliberate Practice, which is what uh, Malcolm was writing about, because, you know, I'm on a first-name basis with him, too, obviously. The part that's really critical about that, as you say, is, is feedback, trusted feedback, failing often to go further. Is really really critical, and I relate it to the very skills that we've talked about in this podcast. All these cognitive skills, uh, emotional intelligence, how you manage yourself and others, empathy, compassion, high quality connections, you know, empathetic listening—all of those are skills that you can only develop through deliberate practice. Which means you have to have either a mentor or a trusted ally that's giving you feedback. And those skills are a lot harder to learn than our hands-on skills. Uh, whether you're doing a manipulation or some type of test, those hands-on skills are really, really difficult. But you know what? They're not as difficult as the cognitive skills. So uh, approach them in a very similar way.
0: Mm, love it. Uh, and how can people contact you or what webpages do you want to promote?
1: So we have a web page called to dot That's called to dot com. I'm physical therapy on Twitter. Um, and uh, the name of our company's website is goconfluent.com. And I'm Larry at PhysicalTherapist.com. Very easy to uh, remember, so they can get to me in any one of those, uh, any one of those ways. Those
0: will all be in the show notes as well, or the transcript, both of those actually. Really, thank you for being on the show. It's been great. I think this, I'm excited to edit and put this podcast out.
1: Awesome. Always, always enjoy talking uh, all things called to Care. So, thank you very much for having me.
0: Another great interview has ended. While you're on your phone, click that review button. Write up a nice review for me. Five stars if you could. As everyone says in the industry, it'll help other people to find us when we have enough rankings. Not to mention, I'll mention you and your review on an upcoming episode. If you follow me at all on Instagram, you know you only get one link. So I use a link tree. And so it's a doctorsperspective.net slash links with an S. And that's going to give you everything you need to know. The top, Episodes of 2017 and 2018, the podiatry series, dentist, acupuncture series, holiday 2017, financial series, how to write a review, how to support the show, like buying a cup of coffee, getting swag, like t-shirts, the Today's Choices Tomorrow's Health book, that's the blueprints for better health, exercise, picking food correctly and financial, and then of course, bundle packs, which can get you the no needle acupuncture book, 40 common conditions, including the electric acupuncture pin at a great deal. The resources page has some of the products that I like. It's a affiliate style. So if you buy something from them, I get a piece of that. Just like on the show notes pages, if you buy a book from clicking that link, I get a small piece of that as well. So I really appreciate that. Things like Screencast-O-Matic, VPN, Missing Letter, JLab Speakers, ProLone Edge or Hawk Grips, uh, once again, if you do need any coaching on how to improve some of your blood work, drop weight and the Prolone diet, fast mimicking diet, five-day plan, let me know as well as if you just need some coaching, whether it's health, whether it's marketing, whether you need some practice growth, etc., reach out. Facebook, Justin Trostclair, MCC. Of course, at a DoctorsPerspective.net on the top right, you got all the social media icons that you can imagine. Click your favorite and reach out. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please tell a friend, pass it along. You can go to .net slash listen. It's just that easy. It'll open up right in your app. And don't forget, I appreciate you. Listen, critically think, and integrate. See you on the mini-sodes on Thursdays and Saturdays. Hope you're enjoying those. I'm definitely having fun summarizing these podcasts in less than 10 minutes for you. You get the nuggets without having to waste your time. Have a great week.
1: struggles they've met doctors of all kind
0: come together to help you shine so sit down